From Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! This is William F. Buckley Jr. reading pages 920. This is Mel Brooks. This is Julius Luster. This is Margot Adler of WB. This is Pete Seeger reading pages... Anne Bancroft, pages 1389. This is Morris Konofsky. 35 years ago, in 1970, more than 170 people from all walks of life came together at Pacifica radio station WBAI in New York for an unabridged reading of the epic Russian novel War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Today, a Democracy Now! special, the War and Peace broadcast 35 years later. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This news just in. A federal jury has just found a former Florida professor not guilty of funding a banned Islamist group and a verdict likely to be seen as a stiff blow to the U.S. government in its attempts to prosecute terror suspects. The jury in Tampa, Florida, took 13 days to deliver its verdict against Samuel Aryan, who, along with three co-defendants, was accused of raising money for Islamic Jihad. The panel delivering verdicts for six months to the day after the trial started found Alarian not guilty of conspiracy to murder, providing material support to a terrorist group, and obstruction of justice. The other men, Sami Hamouda, Hatem Fariz, and Ghassan Balut, were also cleared of most of the charges against them. The jury was deadlocked on several other charges, and U.S. District Judge James Moody declared a mistrial on those counts. Prosecutors will have to decide whether to retry the men on the undecided charges. Federal prosecutors said Alarian, a former professor at the University of South Florida, ran an Islamic jihad cell in Tampa with the help of the three other men, a charge Professor Alarian vociferously denied. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice denied Monday the U.S. is engaging in torture and defended how the Bush administration's waging of the so-called war on terror. Rice's comments came ahead of a trip to Europe where she's expected to be questioned about the existence of secret CIA prisons and about the CIA's practice of kidnapping wanted individuals overseas. Rice did not deny the U.S. has secretly picked up people overseas, flying them to other countries, but she denied this is being done, quote, for the purpose of being tortured. The United States does not permit, tolerate, or condone torture under any circumstances. Moreover, in accordance with the policy of this administration, the United States has respected and will continue to respect the sovereignty of other countries. The United States does not transport and has not transported detainees from one country to another for the purpose of interrogation using torture. The United States does not use the airspace or the airports of any country for the purpose of transporting a detainee to a country where he or she will be tortured. The United States has not transported anyone and will not transport anyone to a country when he, we believe he will be tortured. Where appropriate, the United States seeks assurances that transferred persons will not be tortured. 
That was Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Officials from Human Rights Watch accused Rice of failing to acknowledge the United States has transported detainees to countries such as Egypt and Syria where it knows torture is used. The group said Rice also failed to address the existence of secret CIA prisons inside Europe. ABC News is reporting just last month the U.S. moved 11 al-Qaeda suspects from a secret site in Europe to somewhere in North Africa. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has uncovered new information about one of the best-known cases of extraordinary rendition, the CIA's kidnapping of the Islamic cleric Hassan Mustafa Osama Nasser. According to the Post, the CIA purposely misled the Italian government about his disappearance by claiming he'd fled to the Balkans. In fact, he disappeared after a team of CIA agents abducted him from the streets of Milan and secretly flew him to Egypt, where he was interrogated and allegedly tortured. An Italian judge has ordered the arrest of over 20 CIA agents involved in the kidnapping. In Iraq, at least 27 people have died after two female suicide bombers blew themselves up earlier today inside Baghdad's police academy. Iraqi police said the women were likely students at the police academy who were able to enter the building without being searched. The bombings come just a day after Iraq's Vice President Ghazi al-Yawar publicly disputed comments made last week by President Bush about the improved state of the Iraqi security forces. Al-Yawar said the training of Iraqi security forces has suffered a big setback in recent months because the army and other forces have been increasingly used to settle personal and political scores. In addition, Al-Yawar warned armed Shiite militias in the south might be trying to incite civil war in Iraq. In other news from Iraq, a prominent Muslim anti-war activist from Britain has arrived in Iraq to order, in order to help secure the release of the four kidnapped peace activists with the Christian peacemaker team. Anas Altakriti spoke in Baghdad on Monday. The objective of the mission is simple and clear, that is to issue an appeal to the captors, to release the four hostages and tell them that these are friends of Iraq and the Iraqi people, and in particular the British national Norman Kember, who is aged 74 and who is a retired professor. They have dedicated their lives in combating terrorism and violence and call for peace. That was Anas Altakriti. The former members of the 9-11 Commission warned Monday that the U.S. is dangerously unprepared for another domestic attack. This is Thomas Kane, the president of the now disbanded 9-11 Commission. Are we safe? And the answer is, of course, that we are safer, but we are not yet safe. Four years after 9-11, we are not as safe as we could be. And that's simply not acceptable. Look at this report card. There are far too many C's, D's, and F's in this report card that we're going to issue today. And there are many things, as I go around the country and talk to the American people, there are many things that people think have been done that simply haven't been done. Our leadership has been distracted in this country. Some of the failures are shocking. Former New Jersey Governor Thomas Kane, head of the 9-11 Commission. The commissioners gave the government a grade of C, D, or F in about half the categories, including F's for its efforts to focus homeland security money on cities most at risk, on improving radio communications for emergency workers and on pre-screening airline passengers. 
Republican Congressmember Tom DeLay suffered a setback Monday after a Texas judge refused to throw out money laundering charges against him. The judge, however, did throw out conspiracy charges against DeLay, the former House Majority Leader. DeLay is accused of illegally funneling $190,000 in corporate donations to 2002 Republican candidates for the Texas legislature. Money laundering is punishable by five years to life. Despite the indictment, the Bush administration remains close to delay. Last night, Vice President Dick Cheney traveled to Houston to headline a fundraiser for the Texas congressman. In other political news, New York Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton is about to face a challenge in her re-election bid from within her own party. Jonathan Tassini, the former president of the National Writers Union, has announced plans to run against Clinton. His campaign will focus on opposing the Iraq War, renegotiating so-called free trade deals, and extending Medicare to all Americans. The Nation magazine described Tassini as, quote, one of the most outspoken progressive activists in the U.S. labor movement. Meanwhile, a former Green Party candidate named Steve Greenfield has also announced plans to run on the Democratic ticket against Clinton. Greenfield says the centerpiece of his campaign will be the rapid withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Iraq. And in news from New Orleans, telephone giant Bell South has withdrawn an offer to allow the city to house its new police headquarters in one of the company's damaged buildings. Bell South withdrew the offer after the city announced plans to offer free high-speed Internet to homes and businesses in the city as an incentive for residents and companies to return. Around the country, large telephone companies have aggressively opposed plans for cities to launch community wireless networks. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Welcome to the fourth annual Pacifica Radio Archives National Marathon Fun Drive broadcast. As we broadcast live from the firehouse right near Ground Zero in New York City. Today, the Pacifica Radio Archives and the Pacifica Network celebrates the 35th anniversary of Tolstoy's War and Peace, which was read in its entirety over the airwaves of Pacifica Radio's WBAI here in New York, just down the road from Democracy Now! Over the course of this day-long national broadcast, we are bringing you readers from the past and new readers from the present, reading the words of Leo Tolstoy. Uh, the publication of War and Peace was 1870. In 1970, WBAI brought together 170 people from all walks of life to read the epic Russian novel. In December of 1970, more than 170 people from all walks of life came together to read one of the great novels of all time. Here is Alexandra Tolstoy reading the first page of her father's novel from the original text. Et bon, mon prince, Jeanne et Luc ne sont plus que des appanages. My name is Dustin Hoffman, and I am reading book one, part This is Puck Henry. Reading chapters 20 and 20. This is Richard Avedon reading pages 141. This is Joseph Heller reading pages 100. This is Elsa Mae Thompson. My name is Barbara Oka. This is Grandma Dottie. This is Faye Ray. This is Anne Donegan, translator of War and Peace. This is a Blue Gabriel reading part three. This is Thomas Stewart. My name is Robert Moss. This is Freddie Dundee. This is Diane Serber. I'm Alison Steele of WNEW-FM, and I'm delighted to be here at WBAI. My name is Sheldon Harnick. I'm a lyricist for the theater. 
My name is Marvin Kitman. Mitch Miller, number 33. Book 1, part 3, chapters 13 and 14, pages... This is Theodore Bikel. I shall be reading... Uh, this is William F. Buckley, Jr., reading pages 9 and 23. This is Mel Brooks. This is Julius Luster. This is Margot Adler of WB... This is Pete Seeger, reading pages... Anne Bancroft, pages 1389... This is Morris Karnofsky. In the present case, it is similarly necessary to renounce a freedom that does not exist and to recognize a dependence of which we are not conscious. Nearly five days later, the legendary actor Morris Karnofsky read the famous last words to Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, ending what was at the time the longest continuous broadcast in radio history. The station was New York's WBAI, part of the Pacifica Radio Network. The date, December 6, 1970. I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. In June 2005, while doing a much-needed inventory, I was going through a shelf of uncatalogued reels. On one, I saw Anne Bancroft's name written on the spine, and next to it was another box, and another after that, with names like Dustin Hoffman, Richard Avedon, Joseph Heller, and legendary Pacifica producer Elsa Knight Thompson. And then I saw the words, War and Peace. These were the tapes of one of the most ambitious broadcasts ever, with one of the largest casts. It enthralled all of New York City as it went nonstop day after day. News media wrote about the event, and listeners struggled to stay awake so as not to miss anything. They emptied store shelves of the book throughout the city and gathered to talk about Natasha, Pierre, Napoleon, and his tragic mistakes. During the height of the Vietnam War, when the country was so bitterly divided, the War and Peace broadcast, if only for a few days, brought together Republicans and Democrats, hippies and yippies, veterans and protesters, friends and foe. Mike Wallace at large for CBS News. This is Mel Brooks. December 5, 1970. Big Leo Tolstoy, number one on the writing chart. War and Peace, early in October. What on earth is film star Mel Brooks up to? Well, to answer, we go back to last Wednesday night as the sweep second hand of the clock ticked off 7.16 p.m. A spectacular radio first was launched at the mid-Manhattan studios of radio station WBAI-FM. For 108 hours, ending very late tomorrow night, WBAI is presenting a marathon reading of Leo Tolstoy's epic Russian work, War and Peace, all four books, two epilogues, 361 chapters, and 1,455 pages, with such as Mel Brooks, Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, and William F. Buckley, Jr., joining in the reading, along with Tolstoy's only surviving child, Alexandra Tolstoy, and a policeman. Mike Wallace. He was not the only one taking notice of what was happening at WBAI in New York. Press from around the world had picked up the story, writing everything from blurbs to features. And by the third and fourth day of the reading, all across the city, letters were being penned by excited listeners who were carried away by the broadcast. They started arriving, probably most of them arrived, and, and just looking at the list, uh, most of them arrived shor shortly after. Kathy Dopkin. I think uh, certainly we got a lot of support from people before. But I don't think it really registered until we actually did it. And in fact, till it actually started, it was I don't think it was real to us. 
I remember when we finally started, the three of us were in the studio and going, <laughs> we did it. And I think a lot of the listeners probably had the same idea. Those crazy kids have done it. In fact, one of them is, to all you crazy people down there who had the fantastic, fantastic idea, idea of putting the whole of Tolstoy's War and Peace on radio. About the War and Peace readings, all I can say is, wow. Thank you all. I've been in some kind of Russian funk since Wednesday. What a fantastic idea. I wish to thank you for a wonderful and moving experience. I expect we will never again be the same, any of us. I practically walked around the apartment with the radio grafted to my ribs. This event drew us together, expanded our consciousness, and opened up far-reaching new possibilities. Divine insanity. I can't turn you off. Our family enjoyed it. Even our young children appreciated the poetry and rhythm of the work. Is this what the commercial media, the educational system, and so on, has deprived us of all these years? This is only the third fan letter I've ever written, and I'm so happy to have something to be excited about. We're eating nothing but borscht and blinkies. I'm drinking vodka. My wife is dancing a hapak over in the corner. Beautiful. It was truly magnificent. Everything makes sense again. It's your finest hour, our finest hour. War and peace, peace, peace. Lowell Harris and Inga Swenson, Tenafly, New Jersey. It's been a great experience. Sincerely, Mrs. Mary Anderson, New York, New York. It was a noble idea and beautifully carried out. Perhaps most profound is the fact that this was a truly community effort. Everybody reading to everybody. Mrs. Jimmy Elmer, Bronx, New York. The letter that I find most moving what came from Rachel Sawyer, who was a an important American figurative painter, and he was a friend of mine and my father's, who was also a painter, and. For the life of me, I can't figure out why we didn't ask him to read, because we should have, but we didn't. And he writes, This is to congratulate you and the station, WBAI, for the War and Peace readings. We hope hope that what you have initiated will have have a great great impact impact upon upon radio radio programming. I vividly remember the day Tolstoy died. There was great commotion in our house in Russia. Many students were there debating what to do. To hold meetings about Tolstoy? To send telegrams to his family? In my studio, among the many art books, is Voynya y Mir. When it gets too dark for painting, I open this big volume in Russian and read portions of it to myself and murmur, how human, how eternal, how mysterious. Tolstoy would have been proud of you, as I am, as all your listeners are. Yours, Rayfield Sawyer, New York, New York. And it still gives me goose pimples to see this letter of a man who was there while Tolstoy was alive. And frankly, you know, when I met Alexander Tolstoy, I thought, yeah, I say my father, I mean Alexander Dobkin, and Milton says his When she says her father, she's speaking of him, of him. She was the youngest daughter. She was with him when he died. And I had read about her my entire life. And this was her dad. Now, he wasn't much of a dad from what I've read. But to be in the same room with Rafael Sawyer, Alexandra Tolstoy, who were there when Tolstoy was alive, was absolutely 
for me, mind-boggling. It was an astonishing feeling. There were, of course, many more letters, some short and to the point, and others beautifully written and deeply felt. When we first heard that WBAI was going to do a marathon reading of War and Peace, we thought it was a charming, typically eccentric idea. Now, caught in the midst of this thing, we have found the reading to be exciting, beautiful, haunting, and richly meaningful. In addition to underscoring the necessity of WBAI, the reading is doing so much more. First, it is reminding us of the incredible masterpiece that War and Peace is, and of the uncanny mind of Tolstoy. The universality of the book is unbelievable, and in hearing the amazingly graphic descriptions of the preparations for battle, and the battle themselves, we envisioned not just the Napoleonic Wars, but all wars, including Vietnam. On another level, your reading is providing many of your younger listeners an opportunity to experience great humanistic writing, writing which illuminates and sets up a glow inside the listener. How welcome this is in the midst of our cold, methodical, dehumanized time. The readings have been produced with the greatest love and care, which is immediately conveyed to the audience. And it is a joy to hear each reader get caught up in the beauty and uncanny insights of Tolstoy's writing and Miss Dunnigan's superb translation. I could go on much longer, but I'll stop the blathering here. Suffice it to say that over the past few days, WBAI has added unexpected richness to our lives, for which we are most appreciative and most grateful. Harriet and Milton Schulman, New York, New York. Kathy Dopkin also made a concerted effort to reach out to the other Pacifica stations to see if anyone would be willing to read. So I sent Elsa Knight Thompson, who's one of the grand, old, and wonderful and extraordinary producers of um, the golden age of Pacifica. I sent her about three or four different readings that we wanted done and I said Elsa I'd like you to do one but could you get two other people at KPFA to do readings and she did I think we got three or four people at KPFK to do readings so we made this a Pacific event event as well we had members of our board we had almost all of our staff and a lot of volunteers a lot of listeners wanted to read so we did make it as universal as we could and you know even if you read the celebrity lists it's a very rounded kind of a mix. This is Elsa Knight Thompson. Desire nothing for thyself. Seek not, be not anxious or envious. Man's future and thy own fate must remain hidden from thee, but live so thou mayest be prepared for anything. If it please God, to test thee in the duties of marriage, be ready to fulfill his will. With this consoling thought, but still with the hope of fulfilling her earthly dream, Princess Maria sighed, crossed herself, and went downstairs, thinking neither of her dress and coiffure, nor of how she would enter the room and talk. What could all that matter in comparison with the will of God? without whose decree not so much as a hair of a man's head can fall. There were certain segments that I think we knew had to be read well. Yes, it's universal. Yes, everybody can read it. But hey, there are some parts that you really have to do justice. And uh, Morris Karnofsky's segment was one. 
The one that Julius Lester read was another. Strange as may be the historical accounts of how some king or emperor, having quarreled with some other king or emperor, raises an army, joins battle with the enemy, wins a victory by killing three, five, or ten thousand men, and subjugates a kingdom, and, and an entire nation consisting of several millions. And, incomprehensible as it may be that the defeat of an army, a hundredth part of a nation's strength, should force that people to submit, yet all the facts of history, as far as we know, confirm the truth of the statement that the greater or lesser success of one army against another is the fundamental cause, or at least a material indication of an increase or decrease of the power of that nation. Stacey Keach gave one of the most moving readings that I've ever heard in my life. Bob Fast, we actually gave a, a double reading. It's the, it's an amazing, uh, fantastical section where uh, Natasha is seduced by Anatole Kuragin. It's a major love scene where she's basically going crazy. And Bob Fast read that as the actor that he was. Uh, I think it was a double reading. I think it's a 10-inch reel. She was wearing a best shawl in which she paid calls and announced that she was going to see Prince Nikolai Andreevich Bolkonsky to have a talk with him concerning Natasha. After she had gone, a dressmaker from Madame Shulman's arrived, and Natasha, glad of this diversion, shut herself in the room adjoining the drawing room and began trying on her new dresses. She had just put on a bodice that was basted together, but still without sleeves, and was turning her head to see in the glass how it fitted when she heard in the drawing room the animated sounds of her father's voice and another's, a woman's. That made a flush. It was Ellen's voice. Natasha had not time to take off the bodice before the door opened and Countess Bishkova, wearing a high-colored velvet gown of deep lilac, came into the room, beaming, with amiable, friendly smiles. Oh, ma delicious, she said to the blushing Natasha. Charmant. Then, turning to the Count, who had followed her into the room, No, my dear Count, this is really beyond anything. How can you live in Moscow and go nowhere? No, I won't let you off. This evening, Mademoiselle Georges is to recite at my house, and a few people are coming in. And if you don't bring your lovely girls, who are much prettier than Mademoiselle Georges, you and I are going to quarrel. One of the great challenges the production team had in preparing all these reels was to edit them and to take out the stumbles and trips over words. The production team relied heavily on volunteers for help. Well, Kathy Dobkin. Francie wasn't the only volunteer, and I have to say that although Milton and I were staff, we used a lot of other staffers and other volunteers, and I have to say that one of, one of the best parts of Pacifica to me is it's where I got my education, and I think you did too, and I think you did too. Oh, my gosh. Um, we all learned and did everything from switchboard to mopping up floods to producing War and Peace. So we were the producers. In walks this person, this Francie Camper. 
He may have been around before, but I'd never noticed you. There was something about her that kind of struck us. And she seemed smart, and she had this glint in her eye. But she was volunteering. She was a kid. She was a little tiny girl, for God's sake. And she was not the only one. She was the best, and she became a full-fledged producer, despite her age. But not only was Francie there, there were other volunteers, and it soon became clear that if you were going to record 161 readings or 100, whatever it was, you'd need people to edit them. So Milton and I did some of it, but hey, we were the producers. We were off with Buckley and, you know, Dustin and Mel and Anne. And, you know, we were, we were too busy. So it fell to the little people to do most of the editing. And Francie couldn't do it all herself, so we enlisted a lot of, about six or seven volunteers that we thought had smarts. One of whom was Amy, who seemed very smart, learned how to edit really fast, went off on one of those old Ampexes, and just kept coming back every hour. She'd be finished. She was fast. She was great. So we kept giving her tape. She did more than any of the other editors. She was fabulous. I think it was two days before air that for some reason we had to check one of the tapes for something. And it was an Amy tape. And nothing had been edited. And at first we thought, or I thought, this is one we thought it was Amy. She did do we then began to check all of the tapes that she'd edited, and she did most of them. She hadn't done anything, and this is two days before air. So quick, like a bunny, we all, no matter what celebrities we were with, grabbed Ampexes, had to throw other people from other programs out of studios so we could have every machine we could get. We went through every single one of the Amy's, and I think we caught most, if not all of them. And to this day, these are known as the Amy's. Are there any more Amy's? Hey, did you find any more Amy's? So when recently I asked both Milton and Francie in email, remember the Amy's? Milton's response was, oh my God, how could I forget the Amy's? <laughs> and Francie didn't remember for a minute, but she soon remembered, because most of them fell to you, my dear, as I recall. This is Pete Seeger reading 